0: talking about it this is hamilton today with scott thompson on 900 chml
1: hey it's hamilton today i'm curtis thompson scott's son will weber is on the board willerskin booking the guests in the newsroom Dinah weeks and dave woodard the hamilton bulldogs won an ot last night and will now play for the memorial cup on wednesday you gotta love a summer barbecue with hockey Here's Scott Thompson!
2: You gotta love that.
3: Can't see the TV screen for barbecue smoke. Dad's burning the tube steaks. I don't ever remember going this long, though. But hey, we'll take it. Uh, We'll keep watching hockey after the Stanley Cup. And uh, congrats to the Bulldogs. Who would have thunk after dropping a couple in a row that uh, they're going to go on and play in the final? Uh, So is the Memorial Cup. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. It is uh, 900CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Will Weber on the board in the newsroom. Diana and Dave, feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Wow, what a bizarre day um, news-wise for people like us in this uh, sort of business. There's all kinds of weird stuff going on and um, and, and news as well mixed into all of this. And, And of course, the great news locally. Uh, the Bulldogs off to the Memorial Cup, and uh, and Wednesday tomorrow is the big game. Good for them. Congratulations. And and then other stuff is is international stuff that you uh, really have a hard time uh, grasping any parts of these stories. Uh, the big story, as Diana said, uh, that happened just moments ago: uh, Ghislaine Maxwell sentenced to 20 years uh, in prison for her role in the uh, Jeffrey Epstein sex abuse case. So, uh, that finally coming down today. What else have we learned? Um, oh, NDP, uh, Peter Tabins is the new interim leader for the provincial NDP, which lost nine seats in the last election until they, uh, figure out what their new leadership, uh, uh, direction is, uh, obviously. And, and really, unbelievable stuff coming out of um the january 6 hearings and i remember talking to various whether they're political scientists or or journalists down in the united states uh you know when this started is there anything new here is it something that we've already is there anything that we haven't seen is there this is just stuff that's uh, already been uh, regurgitated and now just put it in a glossy format and and with ideas already baked in, is it going to change anything? However, uh, then, and I was watching this this uh, earlier today, and honestly, I, I couldn't stop watching it. Once I heard the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, she is an aide to, former aide to, uh, former President Donald Trump, and talking about on January 6th, when Donald Trump was giving his speech, um, what everybody behind the scenes already knew, uh, of what was going to happen and the directions it was going in and uh, the direction it was going in and that uh, the president wanted to go down to the Capitol uh with the people and and his own staff said you can't do that this is uh you know inciting a riot this there's people with weaponry here and they actually stopped him and and from entering the motorcade well they got into the motorcade and 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 he wanted to go to the capital and they said no you can't go we have to go back to the West Wing, we got to have to go back to the White House. We can't go to the protest at the Capitol. And here's some testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson, aide to Trump, and what was said today.
4: gotten the beast. He was under the impression from Mr. Meadows that the off-the-record movement to the Capitol was still possible and likely to happen, but that Bobby had more information. So once the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby. He thought that they were going up to the Capitol, and when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, we don't have the assets to do it, it's not secure, we're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, a very angry response to that. Um, Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, Sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Angle grabbed his arm, said, Sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Angle and when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles.
3: There you have it. Um, uh, that is testimony that's going on uh, just earlier today with Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, aide to uh, former President Donald Trump, talking about how he was convinced uh, he was going to the Capitol, uh, security people and whatever, and, and, and those staff who, who knew what was going, going to happen here, how this was moving forward, and how it was very much illegal, uh, finally said, no, we're going back home instead of going to the Capitol. And you heard her testimony of him actually grabbing at the steering wheel and trying to get them to go where the protesters were going. So, my goodness, um, we are learning a little bit more about this than what we initially initially thought uh, with these hearings. Uh, She goes on and tells other stories about uh, having to clean up uh, messes in in dining halls and such, because the president had uh, chucked cutlery and plates and his lunch and whatever against the wall. And they're cleaning ketchup up up off the walls. So this is testimony that's given under oath that has been given by aides to the president, the former president. So just unbelievable uh, information, which uh, certainly points to uh, the state of mind the president was in. When all of this was actually going down on January 6th, it is captivating to say the least. We'll talk about that more coming up a little later on. You might remember way back at the beginning of this global pandemic, and it was so uh, long ago, and I maybe got a bit of the fog anyway. Um, we started chatting with uh, a guy that, um, well, eventually became COVID Elvis. And Cameron has, you know, goes around and does various musical things. And then as soon as the the pandemic hit, that was, you know, like everything came to a grinding halt. And and then Cameron started doing Elvis stuff, and it went on Facebook and uh, took off, and the rest is history, as they say. And uh, as a result, during all of this, we saw the birth of COVID Elvis. So uh, let's reintroduce Cameron Caton. He's with us now, a.k.a. COVID Elvis. Cameron, it's so cool to talk to you. How you been?
5: I, I've been very well. How about yourself, Scott?
3: Can't complain. So far, so good. You know, two and a half years in and out of this. So talk about how this whole phenomenon started.
5: Well, I mean, it just started with, with losing my ability to go to the long-term care term facilities and sing. I went to someone's house on their 80th birthday, sang in the street, in their driveway, had an Elvis jumpsuit on. From there, we just started getting calls, and then I decided while I was out doing this to start collecting food, uh, non-perishables for food banks. Now, I don't remember the last time we talked. It was a while ago, maybe last year, around Father's mm-hmm. Day, when I went to your father-in-law's house and surprised them in the dead of winter. <laughs> yes. um, we were at i don't know thirty odd thousand pounds of food while well, we're up over sixty two thousand now.
3: that is absolutely incredible so and obviously one of the reasons we're talking is you're starting this again for the summer of twenty twenty two What have you got set up for this year and obviously things are a bit different now as we're coming out of this
5: yeah well last year um it started in you know in June when there was all the the um you know lockdowns and you couldn't have five people and and whatnot and and by the time July came around when they lifted some restrictions. We just decided to, to contact some people and, and look at parks. And we just decided on Tuesday nights, we would pop up, as we call them, pop up COVID Elvis food drives in the park and, and, and collect non-perishables. So over the course of, of about 12 weeks worth last year, we collected a little over 10,000 pounds of food. So we waited till July of this year to do the same.
3: Wow, what an incredible idea. And this all coming out of, in the end, you not being able to go into long term care and perform. And when you were performing before the uh, pandemic, it wasn't all Elvis, was it?
5: I never, I didn't. Well, I mean, I, it was. You know, Dean Martin, everybody loves fun yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the, the old classics from the 40s and 50s and yeah. an Elvis, and Elvis song here and there. But I, I didn't dye my hair and I didn't have sideburns and uh, wear
3: jumpsuits. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get into the COVID Elvis thing? How did you end up, you know, obviously, you now uh, at the time couldn't get into homes to do your regular regular thing and entertain people. So at what point did it hit the Elvis theme?
5: Um, I put on an Elvis jumpsuit to do that one thing uh, yep. in, in March, and uh, I had bought a used jumpsuit because I was going to offer some Elvis to the different homes because I've been told for years to to do that because you know I was good at it. Uh, I never wanted to really be, uh, you know, a guy in a jumpsuit. You know, I thought there was always a
3: lot. <laughs> and
5: uh, so uh, funny thing is is you're the if you remember uh, back in May you. You came in out of a commercial break, and you said, I'm on the phone with COVID Elvis, and and basically that's how the name happened. That's your fault.
3: That's, uh, yeah, well, my goodness. Uh, So now are you back doing long-term care homes and and things like that uh, again, or are you still restricted there?
5: Not so much. I mean, there's different restrictions in different homes, and and some have different rules and regulations, and some you have to sing with a mask on, some you don't. It's Mm. It's just a whole um, I still love the idea of being outside. We're stuck inside enough as it is. Yeah. And I just love being outside. I love being in parks. I, I sing at some homes That's Elvis outside, I and mean, they bring all the residents out and it's, it's just a wonderful time.
3: So, uh, now any going back to the old stuff, the Dean, whatever, or is it just, man, uh, you know, you give the, you give the audience what they want. If it's Elvis, that's what you go with.
5: It's Elvis. I mean, I started out singing about 15 Elvis songs. I'm up to, I have about 160 now that I know. And so we've, we've picked, or we have, um, put aside every single Tuesday, from now until the end of October, which would be 17 weeks, to go out to different parks and sing for non-perishable food donations. And we will dedicate each park to a different food bank.
3: That is a great idea. So it starts this Tuesday, July 5th, correct?
5: Right. Now, the weather last night said it was going to be beautiful. This morning, it said it was going to rain. So if that's Mm. the case, we'll know by Friday, we might pull it up till Monday just because Tuesday might rain. So right. um, that'll, that information can be found on our COVID Elvis food drive and basic human essentials tour information on Facebook. Anybody that goes, will see. We do posters and all those other things. Our first one will be at Mount Lion Park. That's just off Upper Gage on the Quaker side, Crescent side. Yeah. And uh, that was our first one last year. And we, we got 927 pounds of food on that particular evening.
3: So if people want to see the tour schedule for COVID Elvis and anything yeah. else, where do they go?
5: They can just go to our Facebook group, which is uh, COVID Elvis Food Drive and Basic Human Essentials Tour. Hmm. And we always post where we're going to be, what park we're going to be at. And we make posters for it. Um, I can tell you quickly. Last year in Eleanor Park was our single greatest um, generated amount of food in one hour. Scott was one thousand nine hundred and eighty-four pounds of food.
3: That is incredible. Did you have any idea that this would take off when you started? When you put that first jumpsuit on?
5: No, sir. Oh, this man. is our This is organic as taking a seed and just putting it in the ground and watching the flower grow as long as you water it.
3: It's uh, a great story, and he, he continues with it. Cameron Caton with us, a.k.a. COVID Elvis. You can find out more on his Facebook page. And, of course, the pop-up uh, COVID Elvis Food Drive uh, Tour 2022 continues, or we'll start, uh, rather, move through July 5th at uh, Lions Park, 7 o'clock. And, again, for the whole tour schedule, you can go to uh, COVID Elvis' uh, Facebook page. Cameron, congratulations. This is so great to see, and it's so great to see you paying it forward and doing these things on Tuesday throughout the course of the summer good luck congratulations
5: you're so very welcome thanks for having me um Hamilton is home and there you go uh, I'm just fortunate enough to be able to um, help in the way that I have been afforded the opportunity to so I'm, I'm I'm very privileged blessed for it
3: Cameron Caton COVID Elvis you can find out more on his Facebook page
5: you're listening
0: to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: What an incredible game it was last night. Hamilton Bulldogs are in the 2022 Memorial Cup after a 4-3 overtime win against Schoenigan, uh Monday night last night in the semifinal to talk more about all of this. I don't know how he, even, he can even speak now. He was hoarse last week. Uh, Reed Duffy is with us, play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs. And with us now, Reed. thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
6: Scott, doing great. The voice is totally back to normal now, so we are rolling at this point.
3: <laughs> so, your thoughts on what happened last night. Uh, man, what an incredible game it was.
6: Uh, it, it goes along with what we've seen out of this team all season long. Just the, the constant belief in each other and belief in the system. When Avery Hayes has the goal, and I'm just going to say flatly, wrongly disallowed in the third period. And Shewinigan scores not long after to take a three-two lead. A lesser team could have said, "While well, the calls are going against us, you know, time to pack up the tent. This one's over." Not this group. Logan Morrison scores to tie the game, and then Nathan Stales with an absolutely ridiculous shift in overtime to set that shot for Yanni Mishak to tip home. Um, this has been just an, an incredible run, and these guys just keep on going.
3: It was incredible to watch that last goal, the overtime goal. I mean, it was just it, it was almost textbook as he starts literally doing a circle around the ice, like from from the top to the bottom right around and then stops, reverses and shoots. I mean, my goodness, it was beautiful.
6: And when you watch it from the back angle and you see the way that the traffic developed in front and guys yeah. moving to try to create an angle and a lane for uh, for uh, Nathan to get the puck to them. And then Mishak just kind of slides out to the front. And Nate, the, the, the young man is just unbelievable with his recognition to be able to look up, recognize what's going on, see that there's a lane, then fire it through for Jan to tip in. Uh, Yanni was probably the best player on both teams last night, and that was probably the best shift by anyone on the ice by Nathan Steos
3: so uh you know talk about uh you you talk you've said many times read about this team it's when they're backed into a corner off they go i mean obviously didn't start this tournament on the right foot and 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 a couple of losses right off the top uh are you surprised they are where they are and and you know and playing who they
6: are uh no no I, not on either account and I, I think they are where they deserve to be at this point i i thought that that first game against St. John, you could see that the legs were a little bit tired. And then in the third period, things started to even out. And St. John got some wear on them after 40 days off. The, the game sort of evened out, and then Hamilton started to press, and they looked better in that third period than the Sea Dogs, especially that last 10 minutes. On the other side for the Bulldogs, I thought in Game 2, the first meeting with Schoenigan, they deserved a lot better. They lost mm, that game 3-2. Yeah. to two. Which put them in that backs against the wall situation. And now, in elimination situations, back to back, Scott, they've beaten the WHL champions and the QMJHL champions. Now they take on the host. And I'm not surprised that it's the St. John Sea Dogs that are standing there at the end. One, they're a really good team that got really wildly upset in the first round of the QMJHL playoffs. And you got to factor in that. They probably came into this tournament. St. John did the only fully healthy team. They had 40 yeah. days off in between their elimination and the start of this tournament. So the Bulldogs, who really, you can take heart in the fact the Bulldogs are probably really the Canadian champions, having beaten the WHL and the QMJHL champs in back to back elimination games. Now they got to take on the hosts, and that presents a whole new issue.
3: And as you said, lots of time for them for preparation and such. Talk about the town, how they've embraced this, what it's been like to 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 be involved in this over the past week.
6: You know, this is, this has been incredible. It, it's a beautiful city, St. John. You're right on the water, uptown, where all the fun has been down by Harbor Station and, and where they've had all the, the concerts and the Container Village. And they've got patios and beautiful restaurants. Everything here has been spectacular. The people are just wonderful. Last night on our our broadcast on the Bulldog Audio Network, my uh, partner Troy Islikar said he's almost scared to ask people for directions out here because he's worried he's going to end up in their kitchen for supper because everybody is just (laughs) so nice out here. Uh, They've treated us beautifully everywhere we've been. You're looking for a place to eat so they invite you over. Yeah, pretty much. That's that's the way it's been. There have been some stories that – just walking around uptown where somebody's asked for directions and some nice folk from St. John will walk them 10 minutes to wherever it is they want to go instead of just describing it. It's, it's a different speed out here and it's, it's a whole lot of fun to be around.
3: And that goes to say with, with all of the uh, Atlantic and Maritime Provinces, uh, all the same that way. It is incredible. All right. So talk about what's coming up Wednesday. Uh, what are they doing today? How do you prepare for this?
6: Today, it's a little bit more low key after the overtime win last night. There was a little bit of a skate earlier today. The guys kind of resting, recuperating tomorrow, more of a team practice in the morning for the morning skate to get set for what will be seven o'clock Eastern time, the Memorial Cup final. And I think they're going to go back and take a look at that first meeting with the St. John Sea Dogs and break down what they need to do to be successful like that second half of the third period where they really took the game over. If they can capture that, almost bottle that they've got a great chance to win this game. Marco Costantini has been the best goaltender in the tournament. I believe now he's got both the best goals against and the best save percentage. He's the X factor in all this. If the Bulldogs could get up by a couple of goals in this hockey game, that could be a big, big difference before it's all said and done. Um, St. John is not going to be easy, Scott. They're a tough team. They're a good hockey club. They got a lot of talent, but there's just something special about these Bulldogs when they get into these spots that they don't quit. And that factor of having been here and succeeded before in elimination situations and must-win games in big pressure with big crowds, it's going to bode well, I think, for Hamilton tomorrow.
3: Uh, you talk about obviously the preparation in the long time the sea dogs have had it off obviously <laughs> the bulldogs have been just grinding through all the way through this playing continuously does that ha- does that factor in or uh, hey man when it's the last one it's all on the line
6: you know i think it really did factor in in the first meeting between the two teams we saw st john come out and really jump on the bulldogs they got out to a 4-1 lead in that game for hamilton got it to 4-3 in the third period looked like they were going to tie it so I I think it had a lot of effect there. St. John's played a couple of games now. You've seen some highs for them. You've Mm -hmm. seen some lows for them in this tournament. There's some things the Bulldogs can look to jump on. There's more film available on the Sea Dogs than there was before. Last night, the Bulldogs got Lawson Shirk back. He didn't start the tournament healthy. Ryan Humphrey did not start the tournament in that first game playing. So the Bulldogs got some pieces back in the lineup that weren't available the first time around. And they both played really well in their returns to the lineup. So I, I think there's some things moving forward for the Bulldogs that start to negate that rest advantage for St. John. And I really do think, Scott, that by the time we get into the stretch run tomorrow, by the time you get about halfway through that hockey game, you can sort of forget about the mm. rest that, that being the difference because the Bulldogs are going to test these Dogs. They're going to make them skate, and they're going to make them work, and that could be a difference.
3: All right, Hamilton Bulldogs in the Memorial Cup 2022 edition against St. John Sea Dogs, seven o'clock tomorrow. Reed Duffy with his play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs. Reed, have a good time. Good luck,
6: S- Scott. Thanks so much for all this all season. I can't wait to talk to you again, and hopefully, it'll be with a Memorial Cup championship.
1: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's news. Today's top 900. C H M L.
3: It's Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
1: Yes, thank you for having me on, Scott.
3: Uh, Let's get right to Ghislaine Maxwell's sentencing. uh, 20 years in the Jeffrey Epstein sex abuse cases. Your thoughts on this?
1: Well, I think this is a day that Ghislaine Maxwell never thought would happen, to be quite honest. like Here we have a high-flying socialite who was living the life that maybe she thought everybody else would envy, private Chat, soirees, vacations never seemed to work, except she hung around with Jeffrey Epstein and obviously procuring young girls for his pleasure. And that that is as bad as it gets. So she can't be surprised, but this is certainly a spiral and a downward fall from grace.
3: Are you, I'm just kind of surprised we didn't hear more about this case. I think I talked to you about that before when it was going on.
1: Yeah, you're right. We didn't. You know, it was it was kind of, you thought you thought that they would follow this much in the same way they've been following, or they followed the Jeffrey Epstein case. You heard like little bits of snippets when they would uh, maybe allow a narrative to come out into the media. But really, until today when we heard about her sentencing, which we knew was coming, there wasn't a lot of to fill in the blanks in between. And even when you look at the news reports coming out, A lot of it is saying, "Okay, here's the sentence, more to come. But it'd be interesting to see how the media weaves that story of Ghislaine Maxwell and how much um, her representation, her legal representation is going to give to the media to close the loop. Suffice to say, 20 years for doing what she did. I think a lot of people would agree with that sentencing. And um, I would certainly like to know a little bit more about what happened between then and now.
3: Do you think more information will come out after this sentencing?
1: No, and I'll tell you why. There are too many powerful people who could be implicated in this.
3: Like, you can't help but think that, Alyssa. You can't help but think somehow this is all being silenced by powerful people.
1: Well, sure. I mean, look at the names being bandied about, allegedly Prince Andrew, allegedly Bill Clinton, allegedly, you know, go down the list of Hollywood mm. and political luminaries who could be um, implicated in this. And they and the one way to control the narrative is to control the machine or uh, the teams around, um, you know, Ghislaine Maxwell from bringing that narrative to the fore. So you really had to work hard on it in order to control it. And because there were so many, you know, famous names whose reputations could, could most certainly be ruined, um, I think that that uh, accounts for a lot of why we're not hearing a lot.
3: Huh. Very Well, I guess it's not surprising, is it? All right. Uh, we're roughly the same age, Roe versus Wade. Uh, I remember talking about this in the 70s. Are you surprised we are where we are? And even if this has happened, it's pretty hard to turn the clock back 50 years.
1: Well, I have to tell you, I'm I'm shocked. I'm gutted. When I saw the New yeah. York Times alert come across my phone, I was absolutely, I thought where are we? I mean, you know, it was 2022. It's not 1822. Yet here we are. And I don't think that this is a surprise that we saw this coming. The far right has been very, very methodical in infiltrating all aspects of the political spectrum, starting in the grassroots and moving up to the the state level, to the Senate level, and obviously to the Supreme Court level. And once you had a Supreme Court that was heavily weighted um, for the conservative movement, you had to know this was coming. But the fearful thing is, is that what else is going to fall in its cascade? And will it matter that people are taking to the streets and protesting? I think this is a very fearful time for all of us, to be quite honest. And while we think that we are protected here in Canada, you know, I once heard somebody say that we're only eight years behind of what happens to the states uh, can could happen to us in terms of a ripple effect. I certainly hope not, but it certainly makes me fear for my daughter and potentially her daughters and, and so on.
3: Uh, Interesting, um, and and not to change topics here, because this does come around. uh, We're watching January 6th trials today. Some unbelievable testimony from uh, one of Donald Trump's aides, uh, uh, Cassidy Hutchinson, about him freaking out in the limo. Grabbing at the steering wheel to go to the protest instead of back to the White House, uh, really reeking of not only influence, but stability or lack thereof. Do you think that will change this discussion, considering it's his Supreme Court that, that did this?
1: You know, I hope it does. You know, every time a revelation comes out from the January 6 hearings, I just hold my head. I mean, I can't believe what we're hearing, and especially about this actions in the limo and about how he thought, well, you know, yes, let's go hang Mike Pence. And how he tried to sway the Department of Justice, you know, trying to go against the Constitution and all its laws that are specifically put in place to prevent all of this. And now we're starting to see a little bit of a groundswell. So anytime that, you know, Trump has been going on what he calls his revenge tour and he's been going to promote Trump backed candidates in their local primaries from state to state, you're starting to see the majority of them not get um, to represent the Republican Party in that state, because I think that people are starting to really think that we don't want any Trump backed candidates anymore um i'm hoping that people are listening i'm hoping that americans are listening a lot of people say that this should have happened you know a year ago and this is too Mm. much too late and that people have tuned it out and they don't care but i hope they do care and unless mainstream media carries it in the way that they can um i don't know how else to make uh, a profound impact
3: i don't know they're gonna have a hard time hiding what we've heard today it is absolutely astounding Uh, Alyssa freeman with us pr and pop culture expert as always Alyssa, thanks for the time be
1: well Thank you for having me.
4: I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here.
3: Uh, That's a clip of Cassidy Hutchinson, former aide to uh, Mark Meadows, former chief of staff for former President Donald Trump. Here's what she had to say at the January 6th hearings today in regard to the president throwing food.
4: I first noticed there was ketchup dripping down the wall and there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor. The valet had articulated that the president was extremely angry at the attorney general's AP interview and had thrown his lunch against the wall.
3: But that is nothing compared to the story. About what happened after he finished speaking on this is the president, former president on January 6th and got into the limo and got so ticked off that they weren't going to take him to the Capitol building, instead take him home, that he tried to grab the steering wheel and assault the person driving. Brian J. Karam is with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, The Washington Diplomat, host of Just Asked the Question podcast, and author of Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism, and How to Revive It. Brian, we talked at the beginning of all of this how opinions were pretty much baked in. Uh, we knew all of what was going on. What are your thoughts on what we're hearing today? Like, this, this is a man who is very this unstable. Is...
7: He's unstable. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, no shit. He's unstable. I'm sorry. No, no kidding. He's unstable. That's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> forgive my, my my utterance there. But yes, okay. no, he, he, he is unstable. But we've known that for a while. I mean, tossing a plate against the wall, trying to rip the steering wheel out of a, the hands of a Secret Service agent. I mean, if you wrote it in a script, you'd be, you know, it would get turned away for being too surreal. And but it, that was our president. And that's how close we came on Uh, you know, January 6th to losing this country and how close we still are. The most, um, I think the most heart-wrenching part of that testimony today is that all the people that, where were all the people that should have stepped up, that could have stepped Mm. up, that didn't step up? And it took a very young 20s professional minor, but she was there for everything and saw everything and said she went in to that, wanting to champion the administration. She went into that job, uh, wanting to do something positive for her country. And she felt sad and she felt personally, uh, you know, dejected. And for, as an American, she said she was disgusted. That's the telling part of what went down today. And all the rest of it is window dressing on just how delusional, decadent and depraved Donald Trump is. I'm, I love the
3: line. Uh, and, and I'm using that loosely uh, basically. And I'm paraphrasing. He, he said, let these people in with weapons. Cause they're not going to hurt me. Right. But they'll hang. But I guess they'll hang Pence, And that's OK. Well,
7: yeah. Well, and he even said that they said they're going to you know, hang Mike Pence. And he goes, oh, he deserves it. I mean, if there isn't a more autocrat, that's so uh, if he, he thought himself to be a Caesar. He thought himself to mm. be a king. He thought himself to be, you know, Quetzalcoatl, the sun god. There is no, <laughs> you know, there's nothing beyond Donald Trump. So have we peaked? Is there more testimony like this coming? Well, I think today is, uh, look, each step of the way in this testimony looks like they're backing Donald Trump into a corner and they're stripping away the people that supported him. So he can no longer uh, deny what it is that he did, which was uh, you know inciting a riot, um, engaged in fraud, obstruction of Congress. I mean, there's Donald Trump is staring at a half a dozen charges here, and it looks like this committee is after him, you know, as hot and as heavy as they can be. It is up to the Department of Justice to charge him. We have seen Jeffrey Clark, one of his minions, tossed out of his house into his PJs on his front lawn. We today heard that John Eastman had his phone uh, records um, subpoenaed by the Department of Justice. They are not wasting time. They are doing the job. And evidently, there is now a grand jury in place or they wouldn't have gotten, you know, the warrants and the subpoenas and, and that they did. So there, where this goes, I, you know, I'm not going to predict. But if you take a look at just the evidence, it's easy to see how Rudy Giuliani and uh, Donald Trump and Mark Meadows, and, unless he comes forward, and uh, um, Eastman and Jeffrey Clark are going to face charges for what happened on uh, January 6th. And that would be, a, you know, I've often said you can't move forward until you resolve the present. And so they, they are in the process of doing that.
3: So has this moved beyond partisan politics and whatever the political battle was and that's just all lies and that's all fake no, news no. as a point as opposed to who cares like this is th- there's going to be charges laid here
7: Let me ask you a question one of the things that that has the the United States has separated itself from other nations and been the envy of other nations for is the peaceful transfer of power. Nothing else. Just that. There are so many countries that cannot do that. And we've done it continuously for 200 years. Now, suddenly it's in trouble. It's a problem here. Yes, this has gone way beyond politics. When have you ever heard a president of the United States say publicly that he would not back up a peaceful transfer of power? Well, Donald Trump. September 23rd, 2020, six weeks before the election, said he would not. Michael Flynn, in today's testimony, Michael Flynn is asked by Liz Cheney, do you support a peaceful transfer of power? And what does he say? He takes the fifth. What? You take the fifth? You you can't, (laughs) because if you say something, it would incriminate you. The only logical conclusion of that is you don't believe in a peaceful transfer of power. And if that's the case, you're a traitor to the United States. My first question is, is he still on a government pension? And second, when do we get him off of it?
3: Uh, You talked about the transfer of power. Does that resonate with the American people as much as, sir, take your hands off the steering wheel?
7: (laughs) Well, that is is a a Kodak moment that you will never. uh, That's a mental image I will never erase. Donald Trump Mm. lunging across the car saying he's the effing president. And trying to, you know, wrestle control of the vehicle from a Secret Service <laughs> agent—that's that's visceral. But the more, um, I, I guess, the more heady thing to consider is not just that visceral expression of of assault by a U.S. president, but the heady idea that the president of the United States assaulted our Constitution and our ideals. That I don't uh, believe has ever happened before.
3: We'll chat again. Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, and The Washington Diplomat. Uh, Quite a day, Brian. Thanks for your impression. Love to hear from you. Be well.
7: You too, brother. Be safe. You're listening
0: to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: So much to talk to Dr. Jack Cunningham uh, with and about PhD coordinator, program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto, specializing in foreign policy. He is with us now. Jack, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
2: Well, Scott, good to be with you again. So uh, on
3: the docket, we're going to talk NATO. But, man, I can't ask you, I can't uh, not ask you your thoughts on the January 6th hearings, the testimony we're hearing today, including from uh, Mark Meadows, uh, former aide, describing what the president was like uh, after he got off stage on January 6th and was, was fighting with his, arguing with his staff to take him to the Capitol and the protests, and instead they wanted just to take him back to the West Wing. Uh, he actually grabs the steering wheel. Uh, your thoughts on this testimony we're hearing?
2: Uh, well, it confirms what we've uh, long suspected, and what the previous days of testimony have uh, have really established that Mr. Trump is a man of of no self control, of no maturity, of no judgment, and who's quite unfit for uh, for a position of power. The uh, the indifference to uh, the actual facts of the situation are uh, are striking and appalling to anybody, and I'm hoping that uh, the sheer weight of evidence uh, against him will, uh, will will begin to shake the confidence of at least some of his followers that he can be trusted when he makes these baseless claims about a stolen election
3: uh we've talked to many reporters uh poli sci experts out of the u.s and many thought that when this all started we weren't going to learn anything new opinions are already baked in it's been so long uh but obviously we're hearing this this sort of information does this change things and does that even matter when it appears that there may even be charges laid here
2: well if there are charges laid we are in a different ballgame but uh, short of that it's uh it's it's uh, really anybody's guess. I mean, the problem is that uh, Mr. Trump has been counted out so many times oh. in the face of uh, personal misbehavior and uh, misstatements of fact that would have sunk almost anybody else, and yet he seems to retain the loyalty of uh, of somewhere north of a third of the American electorate. It's uh, it's discouraging. It's disquieting. But uh, but it's there, and it's uh, it's debatable as to whether this. Uh, the, ev- the evidence we've heard today in the last few days will will shake the confidence of any of that third or so.
3: Many thought we wouldn't hear, hear anything new. Uh, do you think we'll hear anything more worse than this?
2: Well, we may hear uh, yet more uh, unpleasant and embarrassing details about Mr. Trump's personal behavior. I mean, the uh, the fact that this is a man who is so uh, uh, out of control and so lacking in. Uh, in restraint and self-control may uh, give some people who'd previously given him the benefit of the doubt uh, some pause. We'll see.
3: Uh, We were talking off air with my producer, and we were just trying to imagine what the ride home would be like after being told you're not going to the Capitol, we're going home. Uh, Would there be fits of rage after that? Would Would there be sulking? I mean, obviously nobody knows, but you just can't imagine this sort of behavior going on.
2: No, you can't imagine it with any other president, because Mr. Trump is uh, is in this as in so many other things uh, unique. All right, At least let's one move on. Hopes he's unique in American, <laughs> yeah. American experience.
3: It'll- let's move on and hope cleaner heads, our clearer heads prevail here. Uh, okay. obviously, obviously a lot of chatter uh, around nato, g seven summit uh, as well. Um, what do you think the 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 major issues were in uh, g in the g seven and specifically around this this NATO summit as well, uh, in regard to what the rest of the world needs to do? We hear the politicians saying, we're we're doing lots for Ukraine. We're doing this. We're doing that. Uh, and specifically with Canada, are we spending more on our defense? Are we spending more on NATO? Uh, there was ta- talk earlier on about the NORAD situation. Mm-hmm. Are, are we actually spending more?
2: Well, if the uh, if the, if the report that Mr. Stoltenberg uh, uh, disclosed uh, today is any indication, we're not. There's a there seems to be quite a substantial gap between the announcements that Mr. Trudeau makes about defense spending or that uh, Minister Anand makes about defense spending and what actually happens in terms of follow-through. I mean this is a, this is a government that uh, came into power, commissioned a defense review that came out in 2017, promising uh, pretty substantial increases in spending. And yet now it seems that the uh, the last uh, two years have been years of consecutive decline. In defense spending measured as a portion of GDP, uh, despite the fact that we've had uh, all these announcements, the, uh, the announcements on greater defense spending in the uh, in the uh, the April financial statement, the, uh, the recent statements by Minister and about uh, upgrading NORAD, uh, somehow this never quite seems to trickle down to the level of actual expenditure. A lot of it has to do with the dysfunctional nature of our defense procurement process which makes it almost impossible to get major defense projects in on time and on budget.
3: It seems whenever we start talking about this, uh, we get an announcement about something that's being done, whether it's more to Ukraine or uh, as you express with the announcement uh, around NORAD, you know, alluding to uh, obviously the belief that something is going on here, that we are uh, moving forward, that we are realizing the threat that is there. Where does the rubber hit the road here? Uh, Who do we believe here? What is actually happening?
2: Well, I think we'll have a better idea once we get some uh, firm stats for uh, for this current fiscal year. I mean, everybody knows that the invasion of Ukraine was a game changer, and we'll have to see if, uh, if it was a game changer in terms of the actual pattern of defense expenditure for Canada. I mean, for years now, we've been regarded as something of a laggard among our NATO allies. We've consistently failed to meet the uh, the two percent of uh, of GDP benchmark that was proposed back in uh, I believe two thousand and fourteen or two thousand and fifteen, uh, and yet uh, we continue to I would argue coast on the fact that we punched above our weight within NATO in Afghanistan that we're uh, that we're doing so in uh, in the Baltics as well right now, but I mean there's. Uh, the, two, the 2% benchmark, its, its, its critics argue, is somewhat arbitrary. Well, it is subjective, but 2% is still an awfully modest amount for what is, after all, the, uh, the first, should be the first responsibility of any government, seeing to the security of its citizens and the security of, uh, of the citizens of its allies.
3: What about troop movement? Movement of troops in the latter stages of this? Does Canada have more to offer? Are we out? Can we supply more, whether it's equipment or personnel?
2: Well, it's going to be tough because we've skimped on defense for so for so long under governments of both uh, national political parties. We've uh, we've done that. So I'm uh, I'm not convinced that we can uh, substantially increase what we're doing in. Uh, in the nato area without uh, without grievously depleting our capabilities elsewhere or uh, or going uh, or, or or going cap in hand to others to uh, beg borrow uh somehow procure what's needed obviously
3: this all came to the forefront with the russian invasion of ukraine is interest in ukraine waning in the west is that what we're hoping for uh in the end we won't need to do this
2: i'm sure there are those who are hoping for this because it would mean a quieter life for uh, for most concerned but uh as as has been observed by uh, by, by by some commentators over the uh, over the course of the uh, of the last weekend at the G7 we have to understand that this is a long term uh problem a long a, a protracted conflict as i believe prime minister johnson pointed out at the uh, at the G7 and uh, simple one-offs, whether it's in, in financial assistance or military equipment, simply won't cut it. We have to be prepared to, uh, to up our, uh, our overall level of defense expenditure and mobilization for martial purposes if we're going to uh, be able to help see this thing through to a satisfactory conclusion.
3: Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, PhD program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, specializing in foreign policy, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
2: You too, Scott. Take care. If Scott
0: Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve
1: into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
3: NDP is uh, announcing uh, its interim leader today to replace Andrew Horbath, who stepped down after the last election. And looks like MPP Peter Tabin's, who was first elected to in 2006 and has served various portfolios under the NDP, including Energy and Environment. P- uh, Peter Grape is with us now Professor of Political Science at McMaster University to discuss. Peter, thanks for the time I hope you're well
8: I am, I hope you are too
3: Thanks so much. Uh, your thoughts on Tabbins to replace uh, Andrea as interim leader uh, talk a little bit about the challenges ahead for this party
8: Yeah, I mean Peter Tabbins clearly has the, the uh, you know the support of most of the party as uh, someone who can be an honest broker right? Uh, the role of an interim leader in a situation like this is to make sure that, uh, you know, the party is well organized in the legislature, um, that also, you know, it it manages to continue doing what it does around, you know, raising funds and building organization. And especially that in doing those things, none of the candidates, you know, running for the party leadership are particularly advantaged. And so, you know, clearly uh, Peter Tabins is, you know, respected uh, to play that role. And it can also be a role that someone wants to play because then you can't be asked if you're gonna be running for leadership Uh, Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, if you accept to be an interim leader, you're pretty much accepting to to not run. I mean, you know, what's the challenge for the next leader of the NDP? Uh, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, for any opposition uh, leader, on the one hand, you have to mount a credible opposition in the legislature and do the work for the public in terms of holding the government to account. Uh, But for, you know, the NDP at this stage, it's trying to figure out a path where they can go from official opposition to government. And presumably, that means holding on to the seats they have now and finding a way to to win in the suburbs, you know, particularly in the suburbs of Toronto, where they have very little success, you know, including, you know, I mean, they're able to win in in, in places like you know downtown and suburban, uh, you know, London and Kitchener, you know, they hold seats like Hamilton Mountain, but they aren't holding seats like that in, in any great number in places like Mississauga and Scarborough. Uh, they lost their seat in Brampton, you know, it's places like that presumably where they hope to grow, and they have to find a way. Of reaching and speaking to those voters all of
3: the qualities you just described uh that peter tabbins has for interim leader why not the job full-time why because he he is certainly an experienced veteran here
8: yeah i mean you know he's also 70 plus years old um yeah. you know which may be a bit of a consideration about whether one wants to take on a big role although it's true i look at our upcoming municipal campaign, and we have people over 70 aiming to be mayor of Hamilton, so it's not necessarily disqualifying. I mean, Peter Tabbins did run against uh, Andrea Horvath for the leadership, uh, you know, now 12, 13 years ago, uh, and was unsuccessful. And, you know, I think uh, one could ask, you know, is there enough in Peter Tabbins's, uh skill set that would have enabled mm-hmm. him to, to connect to the suburbs? Does he have a way of, of speaking and reaching people there? You know, it's not clear in his, you know, years of very competent service whether he would be able to excite those voters uh, or find a way of of bringing together, uh, you know, the party's existing voters with new ones.
3: Is this about uh, finding a leader or more defining the party, uh, more looking for uh, a direction or is it is it about finding a, a strong leader?
8: In many cases, it's about both. You know, and one of the arguments, you know, at the moment, I suspect within the NDP is how long do they want the leadership race to be? You know, some some looking at the the debacle after Tom Mulcair stepped down, where there was a very long leadership race and saying, no, we want to do it pretty quickly, so that we have a leader in place. And others saying, well, if we do that, then ultimately, we don't really do a proper postmortem of this election, right, and decide what do we do right and wrong. Because, you know, uh, Canadian parties are very weak organizations. It's, you know, a small group of people around the party leader who then, you know, prepare and fight elections. They don't have a very strong membership structure. So the choice of the leader is in important ways, a, a choice of the direction that a party is going to take and the decisions that are going to be made about, you know, uh, what strategies uh, are going to be employed by that leader to go and reach voters. So, yeah, leadership campaign is an important way,s you know, decisions about which way a party goes. I mean, in this instance, you know, you have a, an NDP which has lost some support, uh, uh, you know, in its uh, heartlands, right? In the north, their vote was down, you know, even if they're still winning seats in the Niagara Peninsula and down into the Southwest Ontario, although they lost a few there, uh, you know, the, the base is a bit weakened. So do you find someone who tries to speak to the residents of of those kind of industrial towns if you do that, do you reach the people in the suburb uh, of Toronto? You know, if you find someone who has a strategy to reach them, you know, maybe that's not seen as sufficiently, you know, social democratic or left-wing enough in terms of the, you know, strategies that might be required to, to reach that electorate. So, you know, for a, a number of reasons, I think we'll expect this campaign to be a bit about uh, the future of the NDP in terms of how it defines itself, how far it's willing to allow its leaders to you know, make, uh, take chances, uh, change party policies, uh, change the center of what's being offered to the electorate to go and chase new voters.
3: Peter Graf with us, political science professor at McMaster University on the new Ontario NDP and what they will become as a new interim leader uh, being installed in the form of uh, Peter Tavins. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: Let's bring in Phil Gersky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and former CSIS analyst. He's with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
9: Very good, Scott. How are you today?
3: Good. Thanks so much. We want to talk about uh, Canada Day in Ottawa. But before we get to that, just wondering if at all you're watching the January 6th hearings today and what we're hearing uh, that went down uh, on January 6th after the president spoke and, and arguing with his security people. Uh, 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 that he wanted to go to the protests, and they said, no, we're going back to the West Wing, and even uh, tried to go for the steering wheel. What are your thoughts on what you're hearing about the stability of this guy?
9: <laughs> well, I haven't actually seen it, Scott, because we're up in the cottage with our nephew, or sorry, our grandson, which is a wonderful place to be. But, I mean, is any of this new? It just, it's just incredible <laughs> how... You know, what happened on January 6th of last year has been twisted by so many different people in so many different ways, and yet it seems obvious to anybody with with two neurons rubbed together that this was an attempt to overthrow an acceptable legal election by a man who wants to be president again. I I think there really are some serious questions about, as you said, maybe his stability and whether or not he should be qualified to run for the presidency in 2024. How
3: close do you think the U.S. was for, uh, in a situation that perhaps w- would have turned out differently than what we did see?
9: Wow, well, that's a tough question. Um, I of I a couple of minds on this, Scott. In, in some ways, I, I think this is really just a riot gone wrong. In other ways, I do think it was, at least by some people, an act of violent extremism, which would qualify maybe as terrorism under U.S. law. And in some ways, it definitely was an attempt to you know, basically undermined the democracy of the United States. I, I think it was a, a real dog's breakfast of actors back then. And you were there. You I mean, you certainly saw that the violence that took place that day. It's almost miraculous that, more. you know, there weren't actually dozens of deaths and, and more injuries that day. I, I don't know what to make of it in, in sort of in hindsight. But uh, I'll tell you one thing, Donald Trump's not looking very good in these hearings, is he? Ah,
3: unbelievable. All right, let's talk about uh, Ottawa and Canada Day. Ottawa police say they're gearing up to ensure uh, the return of any convoy protests in the capital, in the capital doesn't turn into another occupation. Uh, at least it seems we have a plan here.
9: Well, look at you know, any good police force or, or security service like that, I know when I worked at always learns from things that happen. There are things that go well and things that go not so well. And Ottawa police services were certainly criticized rightly or wrongly for the way that things developed in January, February this year. And they certainly would have drawn some lessons from that and have modified their plans going forward. So I think they'll probably be perhaps better prepared for my, what happened on Canada Day. But in all fairness, Scott, um, you know, intelligence was available, was made available to Ottawa police In January of this year, talking about the possibility that some actors might have been a little bit sort of too extreme for for the mainstream. And whether that was acted upon or not, I have no idea. But I I think that they certainly will at least tell us that they're better prepared this time. And they don't want to, you know, they want to sort of bear witness to another event, which is going to make them look bad uh, on Friday on Canada Day.
3: Uh, you know, at the end of the day, when those of us that watch this closely uh, digested it all, um, I think the advice would be pretty simple. Uh, nip it in the bud at the beginning as opposed to turning your back on it and letting it build over the course of two weeks before you call the Emergencies Act. I mean, it, it seems like common sense. Let's not let it get started, and then we won't have to end the way it did.
9: Yeah, there's a few problems there, Scott, and that is like, what does it mean about to let things go too far? I mean, we do have freedom of, of, of protest in this country, and we have to recognize that. I mean, I certainly don't want the, the uh, you know, Canada Day to become an occupation. I don't want to see the signs of hatred and maybe extremism that are there, but this is a real tough call. And, you know, in, you've seen as well as the hearings on Parliament Hill about whether the Trudeau government was even justified in declaring the Emergencies Act,
8: mm-hmm. you know, we've
9: had the Public safety ministers say that the police called for it, the police said they didn't call for it. These are very, very powerful pieces of legislation that have to be called on under the most dire of circumstances. So it is a very fine line between when you can act and when and when you can't. And as, again, we've got charter rights under this country. So it's, you know, this is not a, a it's sort of a black and white thing. There's many, multiple shades, maybe even 50 shades of gray in this one, Scott.
3: Hmm. Uh, what are you expecting come the long weekend uh, do you think anything is going to come of this or do you think it would be like the ride through they had uh after the convoy and in one side out the other good night thanks for coming
9: really hard to say i mean there's always going to be the actors that are willing to go to the nth degree to make their point uh, i think that they obviously i'd be very surprised if a few of them haven't received warnings from police that you know what keep your nose clean or else you're going to be in trouble kind of thing I'm hoping for just a, a great Canada Day, 155 years old as a country, we'll celebrate and things like that. But you can never sort of account for the odd person that decides they want to make a statement. So fingers crossed it'll go well, and fingers crossed Ottawa place will have a, a handle on things.
2: Does
3: it mean the same thing to wave a Canadian flag, Phil, on Canada Day? Because many people are saying, oh, it's a bad symbol now. It represents the convoy. How the heck did we arrive at that conclusion?
10: Oh, what
9: a great point. And a very good friend of mine, a former colleague of mine is thesis, put up a Facebook post just a few days ago, Scott, saying, let's reclaim the flag. I don't know about you, I've got two Canadian flags at home, I have one at my cottage. Mm. I mean, it does represent all the best I think that Canada stands for. It has been hijacked by people who say that we represent Canada, so-called Freedom Convoy. Uh, they don't. I mean, they are Canadian like I like I am and like you are, but no one owns the flag, Scott. The, the country owns the flag, and I think that the Canadian flag represents so much good to, to us here in Canada, around the world, It's time for us to say this is our flag, not, you know, the flag of a small minority who think they want to make a point.
3: And let's get it out this weekend and leave it out, perhaps. Phil Gursky, President Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, former CSIS analyst, talking about uh, Canada Day in Ottawa and what to expect. Phil, as always, thanks so much for the
9: time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care.
3: Lots of chatter uh, in regard to uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where it is at this point, uh, what are we, like 130 days uh, into this? And now uh, more chatter about a Russian oil ban. And uh, obviously a lot of people are still buying oil from Russia at a discount as a result of the sanctions uh, that the West has put on. Let's bring in Atif Kavursi, Professor Emeritus, Economics, McMaster University, President of Economics, from uh, econometric, econometric Research, a former undersecretary of the United Nations and with us now. Atif, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. My pleasure. Thank you. So G7 leaders meeting in Germany recently uh, for a summit. How much uh, on that agenda, how much chatter was there of energy and what allies need to, new- to do to secure energy security and hopefully self-sufficient? Uh, uh, how much of that is on the, was on the agenda of this, uh, this uh, G7?
10: Well, a lot of it. I mean, there is here an attempt to wean away Europe at least uh, from any dependence on oil or gas or whatever energy, even coal. Uh, Europe depends uh, in the past few months, uh, you know, before the invasion to the tune of 48% on Russian gas, about 25% on oil and 45% on Russian coal. So the dependence was really heavy. And uh, there was an attempt on the part of the Europeans, particularly Merkel's uh, leadership in Germany, to bring Russia in, in a way, and create some mutuality of interest. Uh, this is no longer the case, and there is an attempt here uh, to uh, wean so to speak or to uh, dissociate uh, and reduce this dependence on oil or gas but it is all in the future nothing has really been materially happening now to the tune of what they're talking about much of the oil that they are uh, trying to stop is the one that comes by sea, not by any pipes. And gas is exempted. And oil derivatives like NAFTA or others are not likely to be banned or to be stopped till after December 2022. So the issue of weaning Europe from dependence on Russian energy seems to be more wishful thinking than reality. It's a bit fancy, so to speak. And there are not too many alternatives they can turn to. Uh, there is a bit, but it doesn't seem to be forthcoming.
3: Uh, if not from Russia, where do they get it from?
10: All right. They were thinking that maybe Saudi Arabia would be willing to produce more. Saudi is a large. Uh, producer of oil to the tune of 10 million barrels per day and have a shot in capacity, which means the maximum they can produce is about 12 million barrels. But for some reason, the Saudis were reticent and they were reticent for two reasons. First, they're not interested in seeing a lower oil price. I mean, they are enjoying and capitalizing on the rise in oil prices. They went down as low as $20 a barrel in 2020, and now they're really touching $116, $120, and who knows, maybe even $150. You see, because so far, the russian oil is not totally dried up i mean uh, there is still 60 billion dollars is what uh, russia made from europe uh, alone in the past three months so the purchases from europe uh, are still like uh, quite uh, uh, significant and they're not likely to be uh, curtailed and even with this limited amount of oil some people say 40 percent had been reduced the prices are hitting such high levels and one wonders to what extent these prices may rise even more if they were to completely ban it in the absence as we are talking of whether venezuela or saudi arabia or iran or other countries that do not seem too happy or too willing uh, to increase their supply, reduce the oil price, and uh, appease uh, what they consider to be uh, their foe, which the U.S. had had declared to a great extent uh, its enmity towards Venezuela and Iran. Saudi Arabia was uh, miffed because of this Khashoggi situation where that poor man... uh, the uh, was murdered in right
3: uh Justin Trudeau uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, uh, suggesting to the Indian Prime Minister that they should not be rushing it should not be buying discounted Russian oil um uh, but what is the alternative it seems there's a lot of people saying well the simple solution is just to get off fossil fuel but uh, my goodness we've been doing that or talking about that or trying to for about 30 years and Germany was quite the innovator there and look, look how dependent they are on Russia. So what is the alternative? Is there realistic alternatives? Is Are we just hoping for something that isn't there yet? And we have to concentrate on being self-sufficient uh, with, with the energy we do have.
10: Yeah, well, I absolutely. Uh, you're absolutely right in the sense that, wait, uh, the world is not going to do well with fossil fuel. I mean, we all know that. The carbon Mm -hmm. content of fossil fuel is causing global warming and things. But at the moment, the issue is we are all captive market. In the absence of developing fast enough alternative energy, green energy, solar, uh, thermal, uh, wind, uh, we are not really preparing ourselves to a situation where we could get out of fast enough. And, and there are some problems with the uh, green energy in the sense it's not dispatchable. I mean, you cannot say, hey, let there be wind, let there be sun. I mean, well, weather- it
3: seems it's it seems Atif, that it's either one or the other. And anyone who I've talked to with any expertise in this says it's a combination of the two until we get this figured out. But it seems that we're, we're sort of lying to ourselves that we can shut everything down and let these countries be at their mercy to, to bad players and bad actors. Factors, hoping something comes along but again we've been at this for 30 years yet and other than solar panels and, and wind turbines uh, and evs we really haven't made a lot of progress here
10: we made some progress no no question about it you know 40 but not enough
3: to repl- but not enough to replace anything
10: Not really. Uh, You know, in terms of electricity, it has really made some difference, especially uh, residential electricity demand in Europe. There is now incredible investment in Morocco and some places in, uh, you know, sub saharan Africa where they could deliver incredible. But as you said, we did not come fast enough or have developed sufficiently uh, these alternative energies to make a dent or a difference. So there is now definitely a world that is captive to fossil fuel uh and no
3: short-term solutions so what do we do moving forward is
10: because
3: uh, yeah, obviously this is an issue that's going to be there for the next 5 10 20 years
10: well, what I would suggest is that there are alternatives. I mean, uh, electric vehicles could be an alternative. Hydrogen vehicles could be alternatives. Uh, using uh, more extensively uh, cheaper uh, transit could be uh, we could economize uh, we could set our uh, thermostat i mean there are things that again atif
3: we've been talking about that for 30 over 30 years now and we really haven't made any progress so is the technology really there yet uh, again it seems it seems we're kicking something to the curb before we have an alternative that can replace it or or even be part of the mixture
10: with one exception for the first time we have a price of energy that would act as a disincentive incentive for people to continue the profligate way of consuming fossil fuel uh, it didn't exist like this At, you know a few months back the price of a barrel of oil was less than so 50 so
3: let me ask you this IT and sorry for interrupting but we're short on time so will increasing the price and putting more pain on the consumers backs Will that speed up the technology that we've been talking about for over 30 years?
10: Uh, there is a hope that it would now that there is. Really I think people
3: a- want a little bit more than hope here at Tief. I think they want some relief.
10: Well, I mean, where where is it going to come from? I mean, the issue is that, as you said, we are uh, not coming as fast with alternatives, and we are, uh, to a great extent, uh, standing in the way of a world that is cooperative. I mean, if Venezuela that has more oil than Saudi Arabia were not really put in a corner, maybe they would be forthcoming and uh, supplying the oil. So is Iran. Both of them could have increased the supply of oil by two to three million a day, and this would have made the Big dent. The story is the world has not really prepared itself for a situation like this. It's not as if we haven't been trying,
3: though. Would that be accurate?
10: Uh, yeah, not enough.
3: Okay. <laughs> okay, good point. Atif Kabirzi with us, Professor Emeritus Economics, McMaster University. Uh, Atif, thank you so much for the time and insight. Fascinating discussion. Be well. Okay, thank you very much.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
4: I first noticed there was ketchup dripping down the wall and there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor. The valet had articulated that the president was extremely angry at the attorney general's AP interview and had thrown his lunch against the wall.
3: Uh, It's Cassidy Hutchinson. Former aide to the Chief of Staff Mark Meadows talking about the behavior of the uh, former President Trump and specifically a situation that happened in the limo on January 6th where he wanted to go to the demonstration, the protests at the Capitol. They said, no, you can't go. It's a security issue. Uh, There's too much stuff going on. And he grabbed the wheel and started um, getting into it with security staff. Um, We wanted to talk to Matthew Light about more uh, going on in Europe and Russia and Ukraine. But we'll start with this and see where we end up. Matthew Light with us, Associate Professor of Criminology and Sociological Studies, uh, European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, University of Toronto, and with us now. Matthew, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hello. Hello. Uh, can, uh before we get started in, in talking about uh, what's happening in europe and ukraine and such your thoughts on what you're hearing today on the january 6th hearing specifically in regard to the president's behavior and wanting to go to the protest on january 6th and and trying to actually take over his car and and get there
11: well it's been uh one jaw-dropping revelation after another at the january 6th hearings and The total picture that's emerging is that uh, then President Trump was uh, closely involved in an attempt to prevent the uh, will of the voters from being given effect in the 2020 elections. And um, one piece of news that was overshadowed by the abortion ruling in the United States was that it appears that he attempted to fire the acting attorney general who was refusing to go along with his spurious demands for for investigations of uh, perfectly lawful elections, which essentially amounts to a kind of attempt to seize control of the government unlawfully. Um, the latest revelations about his personal behavior, they're uh, obviously very disturbing in all kinds of ways, um, both in that they suggest a certain level of instability in him as a person um, who was then in charge of um, the nuclear button. But also, they do indicate that he seemed to be closely associated with the attack on the Capitol and wished to participate in it. Um, I think there is also a kind of tie in with the, the topic of our main conversation today, which is that these events have been closely watched in European capitals and as well as as Moscow. And I think uh, both our allies are watching with uh, Canada's and the United States allies are watching with with horror what's unfolding in the United States and the level of um, political instability that's taking place there. And in and, and Russia, um, it appears that that the awareness of the United States political problems was may have been part of the background of the decision by President Vladimir Putin to invade Ukraine in this February.
3: You talked about instability and the instability of the Trump government. Do you think this, and of course we're all hearing about the Roe versus Wade decision, which came down uh, due to a Supreme Court that was uh, uh, fortified by Donald Trump. Considering what appears to be lack of instability, does this affect that in any way? Can you see one having any effect on the other?
11: the 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 abortion ruling,
3: yeah, just the fact that what went on with the Supreme Court yes, and absolutely. the people he appointed. I mean, I think I mean- these are all
11: connected. But yes, certainly. I think you know, in, in different ways. So, um, first of all, the, the abortion ruling, as you said, is is the result in part of President Trump's um, appointments to Supreme Court, including um, one uh, appointment that was made after the uh, Republican Senate um, had refused to consider. Uh, former President Obama's nomination um, in the waiting days of the Obama presidency. So that uh, that series of appointments gave Trump the power to decisively change the ideological complexion of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, so what we're now seeing is the result of the Trump presidency uh, continuing to be played out in the courtroom. But it also works the other way. So this is a highly unpopular move in the United States uh, with a good two-thirds of the population I'm supporting abortion rights in some form and the continuation of the, the policy under uh, the Roe hearing, the Roe ruling. And it seems likely that the, the abortion decision is going to sort of further inflame passions in the United States and contribute um, to the sort of growth of political tension.
3: So getting back to the January 6th, and we've only, unfortunately, we're going to be out of time after this. We've only got a few seconds left. Uh, Considering what happened uh, January 6th and such, and what we're finding finding out with this hearing, did the system work, or did the system break down?
11: I think, um, not to hedge too much, but I think the system came very close to breaking down. Um, As I was mentioning earlier, the um, the president um, tried to fire his attorney general or his acting attorney general, and apparently he had a replacement lined up, somebody who was willing to um, launch these spurious investigations for him. That was only prevented because a number of top Justice Department officials refused to go along with that and said that they would resign en masse if he if he carried through on his threat to fire the acting attorney general. So I don't think the system can be said to be working well when the president is trying to um, overturn the election and has at least one leading Justice Department official um, working for him to do that. Um, This is quite close to an attempted coup. I mean, I think it it really is an attempted coup and there's no reason not to call it that.
3: Fascinating discussion. Matthew Light with his associate professor of criminology and sociological studies, University of Toronto. Matthew, thanks for the audible, much appreciated. Be well.
11: My pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live, week afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
3: That is a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills for producing and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word.
2: Tony here. I heard the man talk about reducing the thermostat in your home to save fuel in the winter time but they did that back in the 70s i believe and they dropped it down to 68 just two degrees uh, uh, under the normal thing and older people were dying with hypothermia because they need that temperature and if you're saying just wear wear a sweater it doesn't help my toes are cold it's my toes